Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Welcome back to the Arnamancy Podcast. My guest today is Melissa Madara. Uh, Melissa is a witch, chef, storyteller, botanist, and co-owner at Catlin Books in New York City. Their work deals with the healing power of myth, divination, and immersion in the natural world. Melissa is a teacher at Catlin Books and numerous other metaphysical spaces around the country, and is the author of the incredible magical cookbook, The Witch's Feast, a kitchen grimoire. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Melissa. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for, for, well, first of all, thank you for writing the incredible book. And second, thank you for being my guest. Um, You know, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. Melissa and I met uh, for the first time in person at Texts and Traditions in Seattle in 2019. So we're actually now, I think, officially old pals. Yes. Uh, I mean, the last time I saw you was in the pre-pandemic age when uh, yeah. COVID was just a twinkle of fear in my eye. I know. Everybody <laughs> was like hugging and spitting in each other's faces and stuff. It was great, man. Oh, the Texan best traditions. time. Um, and I really miss <laughs> like as it, occult conferences are the thing that I desperately want to return to the like, for lack of a better word, post-pandemic world. That's the thing I miss the most. Um, so hopefully yeah. more of those in the future. Yeah, I miss those too. You know, um the uh like last year i think it was uh, a a prominent um wait what do we call uh occultists who are famous on the internet a prominent witch internet uh, a prominent <laughs> witch fluencer witch fluencer <laughs> um approached me about planning a conference and uh everything was going super well but it, i think it was like right before like the delta spike happened or something and all of a sudden everybody was like ah oh, crap we have to shut everything down again and i think it was just so uh deflating an experience that there just hasn't been any attempt since so you know i'm sure it'll happen again but we have to get back into that sort of mindset where we can just spit in each other's faces, which is traditional at occult conferences. Yeah, that's my favorite part, actually, the spit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it gets a little gross after a while, but. Yeah, I just stay for the <laughs> lectures, but I'm there for the spit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I miss it too. I've, I've done a couple of like digital conferences the last few years, and it's great. But th- yeah. the, the best part besides the spit is just being able to like really mucky muck and meet with other occultists and hear what they're working on, which you don't mm-hmm. necessarily get in online communities are great, but there's just a different level of sharing and of, uh, you know, just being casual with one another uh, that yeah, I don't really yeah. get in online spaces. So I desperately await the return of texts and traditions specifically uh, the best occult conference. Um, the best. The best. Uh, yeah, it was actually, it was an incredible conference. I mean, you know, it was, it was, I mean, I, I guess it, my only other real occult conference experience has been um, the Northwest Tarot Symposium, which actually did come back. They did do that in, in October. Oh, yay. Um and Texts and Traditions is is much smaller than than that conference, but uh, it's got this. Text and Traditions is just so nerdy; it's delightful, and that's my favorite part—the nerdiness. Yeah. It's something that really only Will Kiesel could bring to the table. I love him, uh, but like <laughs> so too. many other nerdy occultists, I think a lot of us from COVID got permission to sort of recede into the hermitage that we really always wanted. And it's <laughs> I haven't heard much from yeah. Will, I'll be honest. <laughs> I love this for him, but I don't love this for yeah. my desire to go back to his conference. <laughs> yes, I, I think we all just need to like nag him now. Yes. Oh, his favorite you thing. Know, yeah, you know, maybe what I'll do is uh I will um 
encode his email address in this episode. And if you find it, you should email him and uh, tell him that we want text and traditions again. Yes. Will Kiesel, <laughs> if you're listening, bring back my favorite party. Um. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he listens to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he will now. Trust. <laughs> he will now. All right. Uh, all right. I want to talk to you about... The Witch's Feast uh, first. Like, I, I know that there's a lot of cool stuff we can talk about, but I really uh, want to talk about it because, first of all, I love cooking. Um, second of all, uh, I love the Picatrix. And uh, third of all, your book is gorgeous. Thank you. I really, you know, that's all Frances Denny, who was the photographer on the project. She did Major Arcana, which was a great book of portraits of like modern practitioners. She's had a couple of like really um, notable art shows with the, the those photos in um, Salem and I think now in New York. Uh, so to have her on that project, someone who's also a practitioner who knows a lot of what's going into these recipes and isn't just sort of looking at it from the art and aesthetic perspective was like the mm -hmm. best part. And I feel like that really reads in a lot of the imaging that we did for that book so thank you okay i i do want to ask you though i want to know a little bit about the uh, behind the scenes process of getting all of these beautiful incredible food photos like mm -hmm. were all of these layouts actually edible or sometimes did you sort of create things and like sprinkle a little extra things here and there just to make it pretty like were you there Oh, Did totally. you cook all these? Yeah. So the way that you have to do food photography, it's not like other photography where you can make mm -hmm. the product and then photograph it later. Food really needs to be photographed right when it's made or else it starts to look kind of gross. Uh, so I actually yeah. had to be there cooking and presenting things at the time that they need to be photographed. Um, so what we did was I rented an Airbnb for a week and we were talking about mm -hmm. magical hermitage. This was totally my, my book hermitage. I lived in the house for a week. We set up a photo studio in the living room and from 5 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day I cooked and prepped and cooked and prepped uh, and we shot I think over 60 dishes for wow. the book yeah so it was really an intense environment uh, I'm cooking in the kitchen and we've got a really skeleton crew of people I mean remember mm -hmm. this is during the pandemic that we did all of this you mean so. a really skeleton well-fed crew <laughs> yes very well fed uh, our lighting guy Joey took home all of the food so none of it did go to waste uh, oh, good. he ate for all of us um, and it was really really intense and I, I don't think any of us are used to working in that kind of environment even for a photographer to do 60 shots in one week is nuts oh yeah you know uh, I can't even imagine yeah so it was this this real like intense environment of work and passion and love and always talking about the magic and the witchcraft behind everything I think a lot of us were changed by that experience in a, in a really wonderful oh. beautiful way yeah that sounds like an incredible experience. Yeah, I mean, I was the the photos are definitely one of the things that like really really stand out about the book. It does it it sort of looks like I mean, not sort of. It looks like a fancy cookbook. Well, right? I also so, love a fancy cookbook. That's my mundane interest. Oh yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> um but you know, you flip through it and you see all these pictures and you're like, "Oh, that looks so good. That looks so good." And then I stopped and I'm like, Oh, shit, that's a ton of work. I'm not doing that one. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are some in here that I'm, that I'm definitely going to uh, take the take the effort to figure out how to how to do. I, I, I love cooking, but I am a very lazy cook. But, uh, this is man, not the cookbook for you. Um, I am the opposite know, of a lazy I know. cook. I not that well, I'm not lazy. Uh, I am definitely you know pizza rolls for dinner kind of person once in a mm -hmm. while. But I I don't <laughs> like to make normal food. If it's been made before, I don't want to make it. Um, I like uh, to make okay. weird stuff, and I think that you can really uh -huh. see that. In my book. <laughs> but I'm not satisfied with like we're not putting lasagna in the witch's feast. You know what I mean? Like, no, no. But you are putting a pork loin with pickled mustard seeds blood orange sorbet with fernet bronca yes that's our feast of scorpio okay i'm gonna make this one <laughs> yeah so i actually had a I scorpio know. friend um give me some advice on that one and i was like we yeah. were talking about all the correspondences and i mean you mentioned the picatrix earlier that's a book that has mm -hmm. a lot of so okay the, one of the hardest parts of like that chapter and a lot of this book was taking correspondence traditions that already exist in the world um, and mm -hmm. applying them to flavor profiles. There's not a lot of like research on that that's been done or writing on that that's been done. But the Picatrix actually has a good bit of it. 
in there and like William Lilly's books and a couple of other little places, you can find information on planetary correspondences, not just for ingredients, but for how it's supposed to taste uh, and what the right, flavor right. profile and the experience is supposed to be. Um, and so there was a lot of like thinking and negotiating between including correct correspondent ingredients and creating the mm -hmm. correct experience. Um, I tried to opt for the latter when I could. Yeah, that is, that's a lot of work. It was. Um, I've been talking about this a little bit with Danny over at Curio Esoterica. I don't know if you follow him. Another uh -huh. witchfluencer that we all love. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But we were talking about this in, in relation to the book, and I've been thinking about it in relation to other projects, about which is more important in capturing a planetary essence and, and creating like mm -hmm. uh, planetary materia. Is it better to have, quote unquote, the right ingredients or to create the right experience um think about like agrippa's planetary oh God, incenses that are like full of bird brains right. and stuff like that smell mm -hmm. bad like they don't create a right experience but they are created from correct materia so which is more important um in my book we did oh, the right man. experience <laughs> more than not yeah yeah um i think you know this is something that i've been thinking thinking about a lot because you know uh, i've been working with the the three books of occult philosophy a lot lately and in in the first book, when he talks about some of the correspondences, he he definitely gives uh, some of the advice he gives is that it's not you know the correspondences aren't necessarily set in stone. Like mm -hmm. everything, everything partakes of all the planets to some yes. degree. But um, what you want to look for are other things. So like you know flowers that face towards the sun are all going to be solar. You know mm -hmm. things that have you know things that have seven petals are always going to be you know Venus or whatever. And like so he does include some tips that can be like uh, you don't you, you know you don't have to follow this list. And in fact, it's hard to follow Agrippa's list because we don't live in Europe. <laughs> no, you know we live in a. We live in a land with like all new ingredients and all new stuff. And we use a lot of uh, different plants and just call them by the same name. Completely. Um, we also don't have this like desire for animal materia that medieval magicians right. seem to have. How many fucking birds were they killing? Can I curse on your podcast? Is that okay? Uh, well, it's too late. You have <laughs> now. I, I'm but not... they were just killing birds. <laughs> no, I, left I already. I already. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were. They. Oh, man. I mean, the Picatrix, you know, um, the joke that I always like to use about the Picatrix is it's meat magic. Yes, it's meat magic. It's so true. Like some of these medieval charms involve like five different songbirds you need to kill. I'm like, who's catching these birds? Like, I feel like I feel like you're really just sort of leaning on the bird thing here. Like the Picatrix, you're killing everything. Leopards. There's cats, there's wolves, leopards, mm -hmm. like every single part. of. I mean, they use every single part of the animal for... <laughs> All sorts of really yeah, disgusting things. Yeah, at least things. there's that. Um, I'm thinking about the birds because I've been doing some research on uh, love magic. It's Valentine's Day. It's kind of around the corner. Oh, And a lot of yeah. medieval love potions and love charms are just, you know, killing an assortment of different songbirds. And I, I would struggle to catch one bird. Um, so I'm kind of impressed. I mean, well, you know, there were a lot more birds back then. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the depressing fact but <laughs> um you know i guess i just i would like to warn anybody out there that if you really want to uh cast a love spell these days most people are going to be horrified if they learn that you you know captured 20 chickadees and chopped their heads off in order to win their heart oh, like that completely. i don't think that works that doesn't work anymore no i mean so i tried to do like a love potions class uh through catland and for uh -huh. my etsy and stuff and i ended up it ended up just being so gross and i think a lot of people who came to the class were not disappointed uh because we did cover lots of information that wasn't you know animal meat related but i think a lot of people were surprised at the history of love magic and how much gross stuff is involved uh <laughs> <laughs> i guess you just have to remind everybody that in the end love's all about the meat love is just about the meat oh my God. No. <laughs> too true um but yeah that's where my fixation on the birds is coming from uh but yeah i mean and that's that's definitely another case for talking about ingredients versus experience in in mm -hmm. you know what captures the essence of of a planet or or whatever it is you're trying to invoke uh <laughs> yeah i've got an i've got an anecdote for you that you can keep in your anecdote basket and oh, we have this conversation you. again um 
So the uh, you know the Orphic hymns all list uh, incenses that you're supposed to use with the different gods, mm-hmm. right? And um, Saturn, uh, Kronos, has uh, Styrax listed. And I love the smell of Styrax, or I thought I did. You know, um, when you get, like, Styrax incense, it always has one of those, like, uh, perfumish notes that just brings back, like, weird sense memories. Somebody in my past must have worn a perfume that used one of the one of the mm-hmm. scents that is in, like, popular Styrax. So I was doing some major Saturn working, and I was like, you know what? This is a good excuse. I'm going to go online to one of those fancy resin nerd websites, oh, incense yeah. resin websites, and I'm going to get the real stuff. I'm going to find the real stuff, and I'm going to get it. So I did. And, uh, I mean, it came, you know, like any resin, like a big yellowish milky chunks of weird crap. And mm-hmm. um, I burned it, and it was the most noxious smoke I have ever encountered. Like, it felt like what I imagine chemical weapons feel like. Wow. It got in my nose. It burned my throat. It burned everything. And I was like, oh, God, this is the worst experience I've ever had. Um, you know, I mean, you could still get a little bit of that smell. You'd be mm. like, oh, this smells great and it feels horrible. Yes, yeah, very Saturnine. <laughs> and I, yeah, and it was totally, it was both. It was definitely a Saturnine experience. I was, it was, it was definitely um, reminding me, it reminded me of, you know, the danger of working with the uh, malefics a little bit. <laughs> it reminded me of the danger. Yes. Uh, I love that yeah. so much. Um, I'm, I'm used to working with, uh, or rather, I haven't gotten the real stuff of Styrax yet. My entire pandemic was me in the fancy incense websites, um, spending mm-hmm. my hard-earned COVID relief money on uh, exotic resins and stuff like that. But I haven't gotten my hands <laughs> on the real stuff. I have a yet. pile now. I have a pile. Woo! I, I should open up a shop and uh, compete with you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love that. You Eric's leftover There you go. Oh my god. Yeah, I'll supply the bird blood. Um, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think one of the things that I did come away with there is that uh, Styrax must have been used as a um, as a, a flavor additive to perfumes. It probably was never used on its own <laughs> like that. Understood. Wow. Uh, I didn't know yeah. it was going to be that intense, but that's wild. Uh, also, I feel like when I, I do a lot of studying with ancient perfumes and ancient fragrances because of my interest in incense mm-hmm. specifically, and I feel like. Um, the fragrances that we think of as good now are different than the fragrances that were considered good in the ancient world. Um, you know, yeah. we're really accustomed to like distilled lavender and like purified botanical fragrances. Whereas in the ancient world, a lot of what was like tasty and delightful what was like cinnamon smells and like stanky resins. And, you know, um, mm-hmm. so there's there's also just a difference of taste. Um, I, I don't love a lot of and, the ancient smells, yeah. uh, but probably because yeah, they're difficult. I'm used to other ones. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's because some asshole invented deodorant and then marketed at us. So now, you know, we're all used to like deodorant smells. Ooh. Um, or to people not smelling very much at all. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and things in general weird. and life not smelling very yeah. much at all. When you think about like boots on the ground, the ancient world, things were a lot more smoky. Mm-hmm. Things were being burned in the street. There was a lot more interaction with waste and rot and fermentation. Um, so just the everyday smell. Uh, palette was completely different. So I, I chalk up a lot of my hatred to ancient incenses to that. Uh, I just go, ooh, my taste is different, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I think, yeah, um, yeah, because ancient incenses can be pretty strange, you know, uh, like kefi. Oh, you made some uh, kefi a while back, didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was actually just writing up my recipe for uh, Hush, Hush, Hush book two um, the other day. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's an interesting um smell like it's earthy and weird uh, i'm not really sure what i expected it to be but it's not as uh it didn't like immediately lift me into some sort of spiritual experience smelling, <laughs> oh not like Crowley said it result. would uh damn yeah um, <laughs> you know uh yeah when you read the ingredient list a lot of it is going to be fragrances that a like modern western people are just not familiar with like spikenard and other stuff mm-hmm. and mastic, you know, um, so it's yeah. going to be unfamiliar to begin with. But also when you read the ingredient list, you're like, ooh, grapes and honey. It sounds nice. And then you put it on the charcoal and you're like burning grapes, burning honey, mm. you know, um, <laughs> it is it's something that's totally foreign to, I think, like the modern oh, Western smell palette. Um, 
But that's or kind of what I like. Hikate. That's what I like about doing these historical recipes is you can actually like mm-hmm. get the sensory experience of magic from mm-hmm. a very long time ago, which is at least a little bit better than just reading about it in a book. But also, I don't think that I mean, you know, as as practitioners, I think we probably romanticize magic a lot, but uh, I don't think anybody ever really expects wizards to smell good. <laughs> Oh. Or magic shouldn't probably shouldn't smell good. I, I agree with you on that. <laughs> that magic does not have to smell good and probably won't. <laughs> except except for your kitchen magic. Hopefully that smells good. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff is designed <laughs> to smell good. <laughs> um. Yeah. In the in the PGM, there's a uh, Hecate incense that uses uh, baboon shit. Black that one? cumin. Oh God, no! <laughs> oh, there is That's one that uses worse. baboon shit. Uh, we're thinking of a different. Of course, why wouldn't there be? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's worse than the one I was going to mention, oh. which was uh, black cumin seeds and uh, goat I fat. I the fat of a dappled goat. I was like, which Hecate and incense are you talking about? <laughs> I, the, the incense recipes are where I spend most of my time in the PGM. So I know them all. I'm like, which stinky one is this? Um, yeah, that one also sounds gross. Um, it does. There's very few ancient incense recipes that don't sound repulsive. Uh, but again, I, it's true. Oh God. I mean, just differences. <laughs> yeah. Just, just go through the picatrix, pick an incense and decide if you want to, you know, burn dog brains in your living room. <laughs> well, that's why I was so surprised by the one picatrix recipe that's in my book. Um, someone tipped me off to it. I forget if it was Brian Cotnoir or if it was my friend Aaron. It was me. Uh, Colfage, but... It was me. It was you? Oh, my God. Everyone yes, in the, in the, at this. the witch house in Seattle. Oh, my God. You're right. It was completely you. Well, thank you so much for that because that's it's become cool. one of my favorite ones. Oh, you're welcome. Because it's so different from the rest of the picatrix. Like, if that recipe mm-hmm. is your introduction to the picatrix, you're not really well prepped for what you're going to find. <laughs> and it's, it is kind of funny. It's like right in the middle of all this other terrifying meat magic. And you just come across this thing. It's like, if your friend is sad, make him some the hummus. The blandest hummus ever. Uh, it's literally just chickpeas, water, and olive oil. There's no even like salt involved. Uh, it doesn't sound like yeah. delightful in any way. Uh, and it's, it's very simple compared to the rest of the recipes in terms of ingredients, mm-hmm. amount of consecration, work involved, uh, you know. Very, it's very different you, than the rest. <laughs> did you spruce it up at all? Let's see, I'm looking I here. I added other ingredients. You, you added salt and tahini. <laughs> yeah, I was like, here are other ingredients that will make it taste like the hummus you're used to. Um, mm-hmm. I just think it's 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 neat also in that it's a little bit more mundane than the other recipes mm-hmm. in the Picatrix. There's no like celestial invocations other than like a little kind of basic moon consecration, sympathetic magic kind of thing. Kitchen magic is so magic in the mundane. You know what I mean? It's so focused in the mundane mm-hmm. world. It's so entrenched in mundanity. Um, and it's nice to see that kind of stuff in the Picatrix as well. Because the Picatrix is so focused on, for lack of a better word, the high magic, the elaborate rituals, the um, delivery of the impossible. Uh, and here's, you know, a, a very, very small, very home-based tradition. Um Mm -hmm. Kind of showing that, like, even within these greater contexts of more elaborate rituals and stuff, there's still room for magic in the mundane. There's still not even just room, but emphasis on magic in the mundane. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. How difficult is it to track down uh, recipes for actual foods in magical sources? You know... It's, it's challenging uh, because it does get marginalized. I think because a lot of it doesn't appear on paper to be, quote unquote, as magical <laughs> as the other operation. It's not yeah. as removed yeah. from mundane reality. And so it doesn't really seem that exciting. Uh, but most grimoires have them. Most magical traditions, mm-hmm. most folk magical traditions have aspect of kitchen witchcraft somewhere. And if you look around, you're just going to find it. So, like, it is ubiquitous enough to say that this is an important part of magical traditions everywhere. Um, regardless of, like, the higher aims of your magical work, everything that we do by virtue of being people who live on this earth is going to have a boots on the ground element. It's going to have mundanity as a part of it because the mundane world is the one that we live in. Uh, so it, it is everywhere, but it is something you mm-hmm. do have to like dig around for. It's not one of those things that people are going to 
readily put at the front of their, you know, their esoteric grimoires on finding your HGA. You know what I mean? But it'll be in the back for sure somewhere. Yeah. Right. right. I, I, you know, I was reading your, your, your HGA cookies. I was reading. Um, there's even some kitchen magic in Book of Abermelon. Um, there's a specific spell. Oh, maybe it's not kitchen magic per se, but there's like to make spirits bring you bread. Uh, and bring you food mm. that sustains you. You do this weird thing where you like place a word square in between two plates and then hold it between a windowsill. Um, but there's a caution that the bread that spirits bring you is not as good as regular bread and you really can't live on it that long. So this is like an intermediary measure. You do need to get bread eventually. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I just use, uh, I just use like Amazon and get yeah. the the amazon spirits to bring it's me easier bread. than it the abermelon well. ritual yeah. and that bread will actually sustain you uh but you know yeah. if the deliveries do stop you've got this as an option um so yeah it is kind of all right to... oh that's um yeah and i guess also there's sort of uh we have such a history of at least again a lot of this deals with like european plants and stuff but but uh plants being used as healing um, maybe sometimes as sort of like, you know, uh, actual folk medicine, but a lot of times as folk magic. Totally. Um, I mean, not that there was any real line drawn in the past. Yeah, that's but, the thing. There's no that, there's no line between them. Um, and I think that there's a lot of like good mm-hmm. writing that already exists on kitchen witchcraft from that perspective. And I think that when most people think about what is kitchen witchcraft, they're thinking about that specifically. They're thinking about medicinal and magical herbalism within a heal yourself at home kind of setting. Uh, And that's great. Uh And I love that very much. And now that I'm working on my second book, I'm kind of looking at that concept in a different way where like um, throughout most of human history, people who have deep relationships with the land and with the greater ecologies of like their, their, you know, spirit environment um, possess knowledge that to an uninitiated person looks like magic, you know, being able to tell the weather in a world where weather science is not a thing, uh, speaks to a deeper relationship with, you know, greater ecologies that you find yourself in. And this is not distinguishable from magic in any meaningful way. Um, so there is no, I I mean, that could be, I mean, that sounds like magic. Absolutely it is. And in this modern world where we have a lot of that demystified for us it loses its magical quality but when it comes from uh, Mm -hmm. an intuitive relationship with the land a sorceress relationship for the land it is not distinguishable from magic so within those kind of contexts like using herbs to heal yourself at home is real magic is is within a larger magical context has spiritual aspects to it, um, has non-material, non-mundane aspects to it. Uh, and that's like very much kitchen magic in a real sense. Um, not the kitchen magic hmm. in a real sense, like exists as its own, like separate discipline, but you know what I mean? I, I, I got a little distracted thinking about how, uh, our, our relationship, our modern relationship with food is so different. Mm. Um, you know, we were joking about the like the the pizza rolls for dinner or whatever. You know, it's easy for anybody to get food now. Yes, you can. I mean, I mean, I, I don't want to diminish the fact that there are like you know f- food deserts and things like that. But you know, if you live anywhere near a grocery store, you can go into a grocery store. Uh, and first of all, the grocery store exists, and second of all, there's like frozen food and canned food, and there's all this food that's just prepared. Like you don't need to even worry about the act of necessarily having a kitchen. Yeah, you don't, there's no personal responsibility in finding food. Uh, it's mostly provided mm-hmm. for you as long as you have money to exchange for it. Uh, there's not a lot of emphasis on needing to understand nutrition, how to take care of yourself, uh, what food does to the body. That's not really something you need to do so much anymore because you've got doctors, you've got vitamins, you've got you know, all this other stuff kind of given to you. There, there's no, your survival's mm-hmm. not contingent upon it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so when we yeah. think about like the experience of food in magic hundreds and hundreds of years ago, even just like 300 years ago uh, to the experience of food and magic now, it's almost two completely different conversations. Yeah, because we have, uh, we have the leisure now of getting to, uh, in, in getting to like you know turn the kitchen into a magical workshop mm-hmm. for a day. Well, yeah, and I think without all of That's, this other yeah. like magical context around 
food as botanical materia and food as magical ingredients, it's easy to see it as one of those, again, just like mundane, ubiquitous things that we do because we have to do it all day and not because it adds greater meaning to our lives or not as a place where we can access greater meaning in our lives. Does that make sense? It becomes a sort of like compulsory thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Huh. You know, uh, okay, here, here's the, the thing that, that I think is most uh, impressive about this, like the, the stuff that you did is like you pulled from um, really ancient traditions in a lot of cases. I mean, I, I know that you've got Picatrix stuff in there. Did you use any PGM stuff in your I want to say I, I did because I, I like live in the PGM. Uh, but there's there's like Hecate's yeah, Depnon Tart. There's some like recreation oh, of right, Roman right, feast. Right. There's, uh, and maybe in the Spellwork chapter, there's some PGM stuff. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different like grimoire sources that I got to use, which was really, really neat. Yeah, so you pulled, but you pulled, you were pulling from really, really mm -hmm. old stuff. Um, but you also managed to pull from a lot of stuff that wouldn't necessarily like strictly be considered, uh, you know, um, witchcraft or, uh, or like herbalism, right? You were actually like, here's some planetary magic. Here's some, you know, uh, pick, you know, Picatrix, some weird grimoire things. Like, uh, that I think is, is what, uh, surprised me the most. Like I was kind of going into this expecting to find a very witchy sort of book. Yes. And I'm really happy that and you're saying I didn't do that because that was the one thing I wanted to avoid. There's look, there's a lot of good kitchen yeah, witchcraft it, books out there. They're, they're great, but I wanted mm -hmm. to go much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. It really comes across as like ceremonial magic <gasps> cooking. It's this is the cool. best validation I could ever receive. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, I, I, you're you know what I wanted it, so kitchen witchcraft by itself and I talk about this in the book is not something that like exists out in the world like no one in history ever called mm -hmm. themselves a kitchen witch that that notion is completely right. modern uh and so it, there is no like system of magic around it so I felt like I had to explain a couple of like key magical technologies like planetary magic, like correspondence systems, like all this other stuff in order for people to get where kitchen witchcraft is coming from throughout history. And like, what are the sort of like cosmologies and different ideas that people have been using to interact with it? Um, that, and that kind of breaks it out of what it's become in the modern world, which is just like we heal ourselves with food and food has magical correspondences. Uh, and actually it puts it in mm -hmm. the lives of mag magicians who have lived, you know, for all of us, all, all of us magicians who have lived from the ancient world until now. Yeah. I hope that maybe it can help, uh, you know, inspire a bunch of those weird uh, hermit magicians who are probably still hiding to uh, stop eating uh, Hot Pockets and Top Ramen. <laughs> well, you know what I hope it does? Sam Block, I'm yeah. talking to you. What I really hope this book does, though, <laughs> like, I want people... I want people to take kitchen witchcraft seriously. Um, I don't want it to just be mm -hmm. sort of one of those things that people encounter in the, like, the, the Wiccan angel fire sites. You know what I mean? Like... It, it's something right. that is so marginalized <laughs> because of its mundanity. There's there's not a lot of good like scholarly or historical writing on the subject. I want more of that. I want more people to like investigate uh -huh. kitchen witchcraft as a legitimate magical science. Um, yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have another Please. anecdote for you. Do you want to hear another? <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know. This must have been five or six years ago. Um, I was leading a group of uh magicians on the internet i think we were on discord or slack or something i don't remember what people were using five <laughs> or six years ago but um we were we were getting ready to do a planetary operation out of the picatrix and um so i was kind of leading them along i'd written a little you know instruction sheet and whatever and i'm like all right so you know the operation's happening seven days from now so now is the time when we start fasting and uh and a couple of the people were like, okay with it. And a couple others were like, oh man, I can't fast. I've got, you know, diabetes. I've got this health condition. I've got this thing. Like, how do we do this without uh, fasting? Like, how do we, how do we, you know, continue the operation and continue this without fasting? And I was like, oh shit, that's a really good question. I mean, there has to be a way. So I kind of sat and thought about it and I was like, well, what if you only, what if you fasted by only eating foods associated with the planet that mm -hmm. we're going to be working with for like a whole week. I love that. Um, which then made, well, I mean, it's a great idea, except that I'm no recipe 
creator. So I was sort of like, here's all the stuff you've got, like, you know, ice cubes and milk <laughs> or whatever. I don't remember what that is. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad. It was, but it was, you know, I mean, I had to look through Agrippa and find, you know, the the things that you could, the, the food stuff that were associated with the planet and be like, here's the stuff. Like, I don't know what, what else, I don't know well, what else to do. What was the planet that you were working but, with? Um, I believe we were working with Venus. Okay. I mean, there's yeah, lots Venus of good food Venus is gonna foods. Venus is going to be tasty. If you had you know? Mars, I'd be like, oh, you're fucked. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, you get to yeah, do the cinnamon, cinnamon challenge every day. And, uh, I don't know, <laughs> eat the forks. Um. Yeah. 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 Just uh, take iron <laughs> supplements until you feel full. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, that's wild. Uh, and I love that as a solution. You know, there's, you know, you know this, too, from doing if mm. you love ancient magic, you're going to have that problem all the time where you're like, I want to do this, but one piece needs to change uh, mm-hmm. or this doesn't fit with the modern world. This is inaccessible to me. This is not going to work. Uh, and finding workarounds for that is one of the most fun parts of of being an occultist i think um uh, that like Hmm. not reconstruction work but that like necessary creativity with ancient magic uh to update it and make it workable in the modern world is one of the best bits and there's so much of that in my book (laughs) oh yeah yeah and i mean uh i think there's there's tons and tons of that in anybody's practice when they're when they're Mm -hmm. honest about it like you're there's no way you're going to be able to recreate everything you need there's no way you're going to have all the specific you know right kinds of papyrus and ibis feathers and dappled goat fat and stuff like you're gonna have to improvise well yeah and i mean even within the original context there was like no unified way that all this stuff was Mm -hmm. practiced you know what i mean i think a lot about that when i think about um the barbarous names in the pgm the the magical voices Mm -hmm. uh and there's a lot of fuss about right pronunciation um and then i remember that you know just like new york city ancient greece had a bunch of different accents um Mm -hmm. and that there is no such thing as right pronunciation when we're talking about a colonial empire that spans you know from asia into Europe into Africa and everywhere else. Everyone's saying oh, yeah. Sabazios in their own way. You know what I mean? So there is there's... Well and you can you can see it in the PGM because people wrote down the barbarous names differently. Yes. And everyone is hunting for this correct way to do things. And I'm like, no, no, no. The emphasis is not right ingredients. The emphasis is right experience. You're not going to get the right ingredients. There is no right pronunciation. That is a really re- I like that. The, Thank you. I like that. Uh, the emphasis yeah, that, I've I been thinking so. about that so much lately because you have to do so much of that work with ancient magic and with bringing it back. Um, and I've just I, that's the way that I've been framing it is that we cannot emphasize right ingredients because I'm not killing a dappled goat. Right. It's just not happening. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. there has and you're to not going to kill all these birds either. Right. No, like, tell I'm, me you didn't, simply tell not me you didn't kill the birds. Oh, my God. I'm going to need to buy a <laughs> slingshot. Can I write that off on my taxes? Um. <laughs> I'm just like, and by the way, I want to announce my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> coming up <laughs> right um so if i can't have the quote-unquote right ingredients then i need to still create right experience um mm-hmm. if you can't fast you need to find a way to substitute fasting with something that works that still creates mm-hmm. the right experience um that's so that it's it's such a hard part and it's something that everyone's going to grapple with if you're doing any kind of magic, but particularly old style magic. But I think it's one of the more fun parts. And it's where your practice really becomes something that is interactive, where you're building it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, to go back to the barbarous names, like one of the most amazing things about barbarous names is when you're when you're chanting them uh, in either alone or in a group, they're an excellent way to like induce trance states. Oh, yeah. I mean, I and half the time nobody's getting them right. (laughs) No, the purpose is to say them, not to say them correctly. There's no like specific vibration that I'm going to hit that's going to unlock a door somewhere and Hakate is going to pop out like it's not like that um it, mm-hmm. the, the it, it creates the right experience just by saying it you know what i mean that's the purpose of it right. you're meant to say them out loud you're not supposed to understand them necessarily or say them in a particular way um and that's where like getting out of the armchair becomes really really important uh mm-hmm. this stuff doesn't make sense unless you do it a lot of the times 
Like there's, there's no way to really understand it unless you're actually doing it and participating it in it, you know, just reading about the barbarous names, you know, I understand why a lot of people think that there's an emphasis on correct pronunciation, but once you get out there and do it with other people, you realize that that is so not important to what yeah. is actually happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's impossible to to read these rituals and envision the way that they will make you feel and the way that mm-hmm. they will make you experience. Like you, you have to do them. You have to do them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Podcast over. That's the last episode. <laughs> That's just Go out and kill the birds. See what happens. Go kill the birds. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not advocating. Oh yeah. For All right. Right. I agree. I am a really avid bird watcher and I would be upset if people listened to this podcast episode and decided that killing birds is a good thing. Yes, you're right. That's an important yes. trigger warning or caveat or general warning to the public. PSA, don't kill the birds. Do not kill the birds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, now that we've uh, now that we've uh, explored all of the um, most important topics of magic to their fullest extent... <laughs> I want to know about Catland books. Like, here's the the thing. Uh, when I met you, people were like, she runs Catland books. And I'm like, so? I don't know what that is. I like cats, but I don't know that there's like a bookstore <laughs> about it. Like, what? <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't know. I live on the other side of the country. <laughs> totally. And I didn't know that anyone in the world thought about me that way because I am just some harmless nerd. Um, I don't <laughs> think that you're harmless. <laughs> Good. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, Catland is awesome. Um, and I think that a lot of people get excited about the work that we do because we're we're different from a lot of other shops in that a, the most of what we do is focused around generating community and generating spaces for people to meet one another. Uh, because mm-hmm. when we... When I took over the store, which was uh, a couple of years into its running, I, I took over for a couple of gentlemen who were the original owners of the shop, Phil English and Joseph Peterson. Um, oh, my God. I almost forgot their name. The Joseph Peterson? Not that Joseph Peterson. Okay. Yes. A much, much quieter <laughs> Joseph Peterson who loves to okay. stay out of the limelight. There was a time where I was like, oh, my God, Joe is writing again. But no, completely different dude. Um, and okay. one okay. of the, the biggest piece of feedback that I got when I took over was that people really wanted something that was similar to this very old, very famous occult shop in New York. You might have heard of called The Magical, the Magical Child. Child. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so many older occultists would come into Catland in the early days and say, it is your job to carry the torch of the magical child. And it's a weird thing to say to someone who's like 30 years younger than you who doesn't know what that is and you know was born after mm-hmm. the magical child disappeared. Uh, but... I, I took that very seriously uh, as like the groanings of something that had been building in our community for a while that really longed for fulfillment. Um, and so that became a cornerstone of the work that we do. And that I think is why people love us so much. Um, and it's still a huge part of the work that we do. And it, it was a lot of what we tried to do during COVID, uh, this time period where there's mm-hmm. all community evaporates. You know what I mean? Um, we tried to really carry that flame online and, you know, now that we're back open again, we're doing a little bit more community programming. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's what probably makes us different than other shops that, that gets people really excited. Well, I've only seen pictures of your shop on the Internet. I've, I haven't been um, to uh, New York since like 2002, I don't think. Whoa. But, um, well, you know... It sucks here. I, I, yeah, there's no reason to come. <laughs> well, it's a long ways away. <laughs> <laughs> it is very, very far. It is. Um, but uh, can you sort of talk about like what sort of things do you do to help foster community? Like what 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 are some of your techniques, your things? Uh, techniques and things. A lot of it involved me having to learn how to use the computer, um, which was the hardest part. Oh, yeah. Uh, great I've heard those things are useful. Bad at technology is what I've been telling people for years. <laughs> um, you mentioned Discord earlier. I'm actually now on week two of trying to teach myself how to use Discord. <laughs> and I'm well. We should be Discord friends. Uh, is that a thing? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'll yeah, send you the. Nothing, I'll, Eric. Um, so I'll, a lot I'll of, tell you how to do it. A lot of that. A lot of our community building work. Um, if you want to create communities that are not isolated in one place, that don't require people to leave their houses and come somewhere, then you need to learn how to use the computer. Um, and there are mm-hmm. lots of amazing tools there that we've been using uh, to. Get people involved with one another, uh, you know, our social media accounts where we do like live Q&As and like live chat rooms and stuff like that are a big part of it. Mm-hmm. We host a lot of different events. Pretty much every single night of the week has a different class at Catland. And if you do take those events and you go to the live classes, a lot of times students interact in the chat room and meet one another. Um, we do little meetup nice. and free events sometimes, too. Um, so that's a huge part of the community building. Um, it's very direct, very with people, um, very education oriented. Um Mm-hmm. And uh, mostly just setting up arenas where folks can meet one another. You know what I mean? Because there's, I love it when folks come to my class and tell me that my information is good. That stuff's great. But when we're talking about community building, it can't just be about me. And it can't just be about my classes, my business, my brand, all of that. Um, so a lot of it is right, just right. setting up places for folks to meet one another. Amplifying other brands that are doing similar things. Amplifying small brands, small voices, small creators. Um, that's a lot of the work that we do. Well, that's a that's a pretty uh, amazing approach to witch fluencing, I'd say. Yeah, oh, I'm a like, witch fluencer now. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. You, I feel like you might be a witch fluencer. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's. I'm glad I'm one of the voices. It's better than. Yeah, you know, I am yeah, too. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of temptation uh, to hide in the witch fluencer community, or rather, like to not have my face. Uh, it, I, I love the magic to be first and the research to be first. I don't necessarily love to be on the stage personally. Uh, as you can tell yeah, by the fact that my camera that. is off. And <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it is important. It's, it's important work that yeah. I take very seriously. Well, I think it's important work that the community needs. I think that's really cool. You know, Portland has um, a good selection of little occult places I'm not really sure how much community building happens at the occult shops in Portland, but you know, every once in a while they'll have they'll have things. It's just it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on and where. And I mean, Maybe. we've got it easier than the occultists uh, of times past. You know, Danny over at Curio Esoterica mm-hmm. has been sharing a lot of like the magazine clippings of like the personals ads from the backs of old occult magazines where they'd be like if you're interested Mm -hmm. in you know uh rosicrucianism come here to this place we're gonna meet and talk about it um so we definitely got it easier than those people Uh, i'm glad i don't have to meet up with strangers in a city park to learn about ceremonial magic anymore (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) my i've got a group that does that (laughs) i mean it's great that still exists um but it's nice we actually we actually switched to uh, a park instead of meeting at people's houses during the pandemic and now we've switched okay (laughs) i love that um but i also love that we have like a lot more resources and agency and it's a lot more accessible to find a cult community now um than it 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 was back then that's true yeah and honestly online there's there's a lot of great occult community online you just have to watch out for nazis Oh, unfortunately, that's every community. Um, I get worried about a lot of the alt-right stuff in witchcraft, and it makes me feel concerned about a lot of the trends that we're seeing. But then I have to remember that that's sort of a macrocosmic blossoming of evil. You know what I mean? That every community, every niche is dealing with Nazis right now. We just sort of have a Nazi problem, uh, not a cult problem. Out of that text and traditions thing, I'm made a friend a portland friend uh that lasted very very short because like the second time we hung out he started getting into like some weird holocaust denial thing and like it was awful like three sentences into it i was like well we are not friends and i stood up and walked out so good (laughs) for you i love that uh, Um, i just hate nazis I just think, what the fuck? (laughs) You know, I actually had a similar experience at that conference. Uh, I spent the entire weekend talking to some dudes who were from a specific publishing house that I'm not going to name. And like a week after the conference, it came out that they were publishing the work of someone who was involved in like Operation Werewolf and those like fitness Nazis. I remember that. I remember that. the drama. And I was like, shoot, I wasted a whole week talking to you nerds. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, because they have some interesting occult ideas, uh, but they're also huge assholes, uh, huge mm-hmm. assholes. So, it, but it's everywhere. You know what I mean? And that's it the only is. comfort that I take is that I've got to be vigilant about that in all aspects of my life. We are concerned about it in the occult community because that's our our niche. That's our community. You know what I mean? But, but it it's is everywhere happening right now. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and actually, just saying it's everywhere right now. It, it's it's been everywhere. It's just there. It's more in the open now. Oh yeah, now there's no reason to hide because there's yeah. no fear of repercussion. Um, yeah, at least yeah. uh, not from other people who are not me and you. You know, you stood up and left right. that dinner. Uh, <laughs> there's repercussion <laughs> for people who care. Uh, so we just need more folks who are willing to give repercussions. Not oh, yes, that sounded yes. mean. That sounded so mean. Uh, but. I advocate, you know, meanness towards Nazis. I don't, I don't think that's. I mean, I feel uh, far more hostility towards Nazis than I do towards birds. I will say that for sure. Yes, that is the takeaway. (laughs) You know, if you wanna, if you need blood for your witchcraft, leave the birds alone. Kill a Nazi. Kill a Nazi. Um, oh boy, I, are we allowed to publish that no, sort of thing became, in the internet? Like now, the FBI is listening. Um, <laughs> I don't. You know, I need more listeners. This is how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Dang! So you said I'm a dangerous person earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, but I'm not harmless. <laughs> I did. I, I, mean, I might have said that. <laughs> Um, all right. So Catlin Books, and you get, you're located in Brooklyn, but you have a pretty good online presence. We do. Yeah. Uh, so the shop itself okay. is in Bushwick, uh, which is the, the hippie, the, hip, the hipster part of Brooklyn. Uh, and then uh-huh. uh, we have our shop online. We have all of our events online. We have our social media live stream stuff as well. So no matter where you mm-hmm. are in the world, you can be a part of the community and take advantage of like the connections that we offer and the, the spaces to sort of meet other folks that we offer. Sweet. Okay, cool. I'll make sure that there are some links to um, to your Catland stuff in the show notes. Oh, please, yeah. So that people can go check that out uh, after they order your cookbook, <laughs> of course. Uh, I'm going to ask. I'm going to go back to the cookbook question because one of the things that I'm really horrible at is um, maintaining one topic for an entire episode. And who wants to listen to that? Like you. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the process of writing a cookbook. You know, we talked a little bit about the research and how difficult it was to find these recipes. But then the mundane portion, the portion that is like, uh, do the recipes work? Do they taste good? So you cooked every single thing in this book, like more than once. Yeah. Um, Not, I mean, so. You think there are some that you didn't do? Some of like the the tinctures and bitters at the end, I didn't necessarily. Mm -hmm. That, I don't really, the flavor is going to be what it is. I think there's like a catnip and mugwort tea at the end. I know what that tastes like. So, you know, I don't need to make it for myself. Um, It's going to be tasty regardless. Uh, But most things I did have to test. And then also my publisher is Watkins in the UK. And so we printed Uh all the recipes in both metric and US conventional uh, measurements. So... Uh-huh. That was the hardest recipe finagling, uh, was getting everything for both audiences in both cups and grams and all of that stuff. Uh, so there was... A... Oh, because you had to learn how to do that, huh? Yes. Because uh, and there's also there's a... an alarming amount of ingredients that are common in the U.S. that are just not had overseas. Like, you can't get root beer in the U.K. What? Root beer is not a thing. What do they... Um, what do they feed kids? Uh, yeah. Um, and I I remember at one point I used the word barbecue in, you know, like a roasting recipe. And my publisher hit me back and was like, do you mean an outside grill? And I was like, oh, I think I do. Um, <laughs> dang. Um, yeah. Uh, so I learned a lot of interesting words. Uh, a lot of ingredients uh-huh. do not cross over. Um so that part was challenging, but I do love to cook. And I had a bunch of like recipe books of mine for years that I've just been waiting to do something with. So there was like a backlog of years and years and years of recipe testing that went into this that made a lot of that easier. Um, but the ah. benefit was, you know, I wrote the book during the pandemic. So I had this almost monastic environment of no people, just me and the work uh, for yeah. almost a full year. Uh, so to be here and do this sort of like intimate magical work with the food 
was something I would not have been able to have the opportunity to do otherwise. And I, I really do hope that that reads in the recipes too. There's a, a genuine connection with them that I got to have in this very unique ritual container of COVID, you know, quarantine that I wouldn't have been mm-hmm. able to have otherwise. Are there any recipes in there that you have uh, fallen in love with that you just keep making? Dang, uh, so many of them. There's this um, rosemary home blessing bread from the final chapter that is one of my favorite things to make. It's so good and everyone loves it. And I think it's because it has so many like bright Jupiter flavors. It's It's got a lot of ingredients that are like traditional offerings for household spirits that just sort of make mm. you feel good. They've got that, that Hildegard von Bingen feel good energy. Uh, and that's, that's the one that I bring out constantly. It's the filling is such a weird, unfamiliar flavor palette though. I think it's like hazelnuts, rosemary, and orange zest. Like not, not a couple of things that most people put together. It, it rings like a bell. Like it's just, it's weird. It's bold, but it's so good. Uh, And it's definitely very emblematic of the way that I like to cook, which is here's something that you all love. Let's try it away. You've never seen it before. Um, So that's one that I bring out quite a bit. If I ever um, if I ever make it to New York City, will you will you cook me dinner? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, Yes. I've been trying to do more now that we're able to do stuff with people again, more like pop up Mm -hmm. dinners and like cooking for other people kind of environments. I really love to do like tasting menus. You can see that in the book for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) There's never just one thing. It's always like this and an accompanying dish. Uh, And I think that that's my Gemini stellium, uh, you know, never in one place at one time kind of thing. But uh, I want to do more of that stuff. I want to do more cooking with people and engaging over food with people. Because like magic, this stuff is something that needs to be experienced in order to be understood. Um, so mm-hmm. that's a necessary aspect of the work as well, to like get off of my couch, stop writing the books, and actually serve the food to people. Well, she it. Well, put me on your mailing list. Yes! Oh, when I learn how to do a mailing list. <laughs> I made list. it uh, <laughs> I made it all the way to New Haven last year I, on the train. So, so you know... I know, I know. It was close. I, it, I, it was a, it was a strange journey. I was on a strange journey. It was a good one. I love that. I love magicians <laughs> on strange journeys. Um, hopefully, I'll be on my strange journey out west again soon. Uh, when Will Kiesel restarts his conference, that he will restart specifically because of this podcast. <laughs> I hope so. I will. Uh, I will email him a link. I'll be like, "Hey, Will, guess what? Like, I, I yes. yeah, I um." I haven't talked to him in a while. I should probably reach out. Yeah, we get we bully Will Kiesel live on the air um, and convince him (laughs) to restart my favorite (laughs) occult conference. (laughs) I will. uh, I'll get him to be a guest on the podcast and then we will ambush him and we will just have. Yeah, we've got a caller coming in. Oh, it's Melissa coming in from New York. Oh, look at this. (laughs) (laughs) And she's screaming about something. What (laughs) What could it be? Uh, Yeah. Um, He actually invited me to speak at uh, the Texan Traditions 2020 uh, edition that didn't happen. Um, Yeah. So I I hope I get to work with him on that conference again in the future. Um, That would be be sick. and it would be nice to kind of be having these conversations about kitchen witchcraft with like the nerdy ceremonial magic crowd. You know what I mean? Who mostly... In a kitchen. Well, it, uh, that would be sick. Uh, <laughs> last time the conference was at a Masonic Lodge. I bet you there's a kitchen somewhere in that building. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know exactly where it is. I mean, you know, Masonic Lodges <laughs> tend to look sort of the same on the inside yes. because the, the book fair, the book fair was in the dining hall. In the dining hall. Oh, right. There was a kitchen there. So, yes, Texan yeah. Traditions 2024. I'm cooking for everyone. Uh, this is <laughs> this is what gets us off the ground. Um, but I want to be sharing more of this information with that kind of group of people, with, like, the bookie ceremonial magic people who aren't thinking about kitchen magic as magical technology. Yeah. I think that would be a really – I think that it would be really amazing. I would love to see that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we're reaching the end of our recording time. Um, is there any uh, additional message that you feel like the listeners need to have, such as any kitchen safety tips, um, anything, <laughs> any incense that goes poorly with morning coffee, so, something like that? Mm, uh I think if I was going to tell the listeners anything, it would be to try their hand at doing magic and and cooking simultaneously sometime within the next month. Um, And 
Like right. experiment with the tools that they already have within their practice and the knowledge they already have uh, of their of their bodies and of their relationship with magical currents and see if that can be enough to, you know, extrapolate a kitchen witchcraft practice. You don't need necessarily other people's ideas and thoughts about it. You already kind of have the tools to do this on your own. And I think if people take that as a meditation, they'll realize that they actually have a lot of resources and a lot of knowledge mm-hmm. about kitchen witchcraft, you know, already contained within the body. Um, so that's your podcast homework, I guess. Yep, yep, there you go. <laughs> and <laughs> your microwave is a magical tool. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Summon something in your microwave. That's your homework. <laughs> well, Just, you. you know that the oh yeah sorry oh yeah, no I please. was going to say thank you so much for having me. It's been so good to catch up with you, and this has been such a yeah. stimulating conversation. I need to be having more conversations like this with other people uh, in the magical world. So thank you. Oh, thank you. This has been really excellent. Yeah, like I said, I'm I'm sorry it took me so long to to schedule. I I feel like. Uh, every episode I've had lately, I've been apologizing to my guests being like, I know we tried to schedule like a year ago, like when your book came out and then... Uh... Listen, time moves differently in the post-pandemic world and it hasn't really come back to whatever normalcy was. So in, in this dream state, well, you, it's all good. <laughs> maybe it's just time for us to acknowledge that time has always been a lie. Oh, thank you. Oh, we can finally let that go. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to include, uh, links in the show notes, but in case people are too lazy to look at the show notes, maybe you can tell them where to find you on the internet. Totally. Yeah. Um, so I am only on one form of social media cause it's the only one that I can tolerate and that's Instagram. Um, uh, and you can find me at Saint period J A Y N E, which is my middle name. Uh, we just started a Patreon this week for folks who want to do some ritual work uh, with some of the rituals that I've been publishing and want to read some more of my articles. So that's another way to find me. And that's under my brand name, which is Moon Cult, um, which is the same name that you can find my like apothecary work under a lot of different places, but all under sort of the same names. Uh, so if you check me out on Instagram, there's a link tree there and that'll link you out to everywhere else. And Catland is, of course, you know, on the same social media as Catland Books. Um, those are the two places on instagram you can find us and from there you know the links kind of branch out uh but yeah that's where you can find me excellent well thank you and thank you again for uh being my guest etc etc of course thank you for having me this has been another episode of the arnamancy podcast thank you for joining me i have been your host reverend eric You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.